Right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Toby Dodge and I teach at the London School of Economics. Uh, Omar will take us through the paper, but also I think much more interestingly, expand into the work he's done in his nearly completed doctoral dissertation, Scarecrows of the State Security Checkpoints in Contemporary Baghdad. I think a truly innovative piece of work, which is part of his uh, PhD in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Toby, I think uh, we lost you at the end of there. So I'll just note that I think you're in, you're in Arbil and I'm in Beirut, and I think you handed it over to me. Uh, so I will, without further ado, jump in. Um, and uh, thank you uh, again for that. Or thank you for the, for the generous introduction. It's a pleasure to, to be with you all. Um, before I begin, I, I, I must acknowledge two, uh, two issues that uh, may seem far from today's topic. First, as we gather virtually today, the war on Palestine and Palestinians continues, as it has for decades. Israeli apartheid continues to show just how vicious and unrelenting it is, the rank disregard for Palestinian life so manifest. These are not normal times we are gathering in, and thus we must vocalize loudly our solidarity with Palestinians across historic Palestine. Second, the University of Toronto, where I am completing my PhD, is currently under censure by the Canadian Association of University Teachers, CAUT. This incredibly rare rebuke of my university comes in response to the revocation of a job offer for Dr. Valentina Azarova, who was hired to lead the International Human Rights Program based at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Her job offer was revoked after university donors expressed displeasure with her views, criticizing Israel for violations of international law against the Palestinian people. This revocation amounted to a clear violation of academic freedom, all too familiar when it comes to the issue of speaking out on the wanton abuse of Palestinians and their human rights. I take this opportunity as a, as a doctoral student at the University of Toronto to express my full support for the censure campaign which includes calling for a boycott of participation in activities at the university until Dr. Azarova's job offer is reinstated and her hiring completed. More information on this, on this uh, issue can be found at censureutoronto.ca. That's censureutoronto.ca. And I encourage you all to read up on this very pressing and important matter. Thank you for, for giving me the space to address these, these issues. And now to the, uh, to the paper. Thank you to the LSE Middle East Center for funding this research and publishing this uh, paper, to Toby Dodge and Sanja Sfer for their support, and to Nadine El-Manasri and Jack McGinn for their brilliant uh, editing and editorial assistance. In my brief introductory remarks today, I want to sketch the contours of this, uh, of this working paper. Destructive creation seeks to investigate how three forces are collectively transforming Baghdad, violence, land privatization, and consumer patterns. I will touch on each of these in the hopes of spotlighting how they enmesh, for it is their entanglement that I suggest is what is driving the ways in which political economic elites continue to benefit from a set of urban conditions that has done little to improve everyday life for most residents. First, a great deal of ink has been spilled grappling with the ways violence and coercion have affected social transformations in Baghdad. 
What often receives the most attention is the period from 2006 to 2008, during what is known as the period of civil war, civil war or more euphemistically, uh, the sectarianism, or simply the events. In terms of the relationship between violence and social change, this period garners much of the focus in part because of how violence um, helped to facilitate the homogenizing of formerly mixed neighborhoods. Though I must note, the ways in which uh, US counterinsurgency tactics and strategies during this period, coinciding with the, the surge of US troops as, as it is uh, popularly known, helped to facilitate ethnic cleansing of, of neighborhoods. This fact is often occluded from the story in favor of a, a narrative largely grounded in primordial identitarian assumptions about sectarian conflict. Given this, this history, it, here it is, it is helpful to note that the research in this paper ultimately came out of my doctoral dissertation work on the omnipresence of checkpoints across the city and that first began to appear with the US occupation. In that work, I investigate why it is that checkpoints have persisted across the city for years, even while uh, being widely lamented as ineffective at providing security. The answer I suggest is tied to the ways in which, even though they are sites of mockery and scorn among most residents, checkpoints remain effective in generating the entity deemed responsible for their failure, the state. It is this research that informed my point of departure for this paper, thinking through violence as both a condition and a conditioning force. To show this, I consider in part how different parastatal armed groups are perceived to control respective parts of the city and how residents grapple with such parastatal power. But I also spotlight specific events that have become hallmarks of insecurity in a city that once primarily conjured images of, of car bombs. I specifically reflect on the uh, Karate disaster of Karifa, as it's colloquially known, that occurred in July 2016, uh, perpetrated by, by Daesh. Spectacular acts of violence are a prompt to think through what I call their afterlives in this paper. The ways in which everyday conditions of insecurity have persisted across time and have structured mobility across the city, such as between Karada and Mansur, the two districts which are the focus of this paper. Lo uh, lovers of Baghdad, a club I am certainly a member of, may be frustrated by yet more research on Iraq that once again places emphasis on violence. The critique uh, is perhaps a valid one, but I maintain the issue is less that violence in Iraq gets too much attention. It often just gets the wrong kind. Put differently, infrastructures of security, indeed of coercion, such as checkpoints, uh, continue to, to dot, to pockmark uh, Baghdad streetscapes. Their ubiquity thus suggests violence remains an unavoidable part of the urban story. But rather than focus on violence as such, I use this paper to think through the ways in which coercion is a condition and conditioning mechanism precisely because it is wrapped up with other urban forces and that have in turn given rise to enduring social spatial transformations. A second issue area or for force I thus consider is the privatization of formerly public property and land. This ongoing process has occurred in a number of ways, some of them sanctioned and indeed promoted by in, uh, state institutions like Iraq's National Investment Commission, 
initially set up to encourage foreign direct investment into Iraq. Such efforts can be traced back to economic reforms, if we can call them that, introduced by Paul Bremer and the infamous Coalition Provisional Authority, which governed Iraq for 14 months until June 2004. I focus on circumscribed sites and spaces that are often neglected, ignored, obscured from analysis. I use the example of El Kumait Primary School for Boys in Outer Karad, Karad Kharaj. The case does not simply show the ways in which uh, public education is, is hardly a priority among those in power today in Iraq, though this is no doubt part of, part of the story and rarely gets enough attention. Rather, El Kumait helps to highlight the ways the privatization of land for financial interests is advanced in part by those in power with access to coercive state and parastate apparatuses. The same, I argue, is the case with the construction of a conference hall located somewhat at the boundary between Outer Karada and Jadriya, just east of the University of Baghdad. This site was often pointed to by interlocutors as an example of the ways in which power, coercive or otherwise, and property intertwine to transform the city. Here, I, I want to emphasize a, a methodological point. This working paper is grounded in more than a year of ethnographic fieldwork in Baghdad including three months of interviews in the spring and summer of 2019 with engineers, bureaucrats, activists, academics, and, and many others. But also by focusing on micro sites, a school, a conference hall, shopping centers, informal shopping stalls, and, and others across two vital districts that are at once similar and different. This paper deploys a political geographic approach to studying Baghdad. I foreground what longtime residents themselves insisted to me mattered when we spoke about the social spatial changes they have lived. In other words, residents of these districts help to identify these circumscribed sites as spaces that exemplify or make real the entangled political economic forces they live. This paper then also looks at how as a, a third force, Changing patterns of consumption or consumerism are implicated in the ways the city is transforming. Again, this consideration of consumption cannot be disentangled from violence and the privatization of formerly public lands that I've been speaking about. Pressing on these imminent interconnections, I reflect on the rapid construction of shopping malls, some of which were built on the grounds of former central markets, once owned and operated by public institutions. Some of these former, former buildings were, were used as forward operating bases by US forces during their occupation of the city. These, uh, these shopping centers, these new shopping centers I look at or uh, should note are, are mainly focused in Mansur uh, district um, and, the, you know, and the density of the, of the shopping malls that have sprung up there, um, a district that has long been a site of kind of entertainment uh, for residents. Uh, but these conditions also point to the ways in which urban planning regulations have been submerged, made irrelevant across the city, not just in Mansur, by the private interests of developers and political economic elite. By focusing on the development and transformation of consumer sites, I insist on a juxtaposition of the construction of new shopping malls with the persistence and subsequent removal of informal shopping stalls, what are called bastiyat. Notably, these basliyat are often referred to as tijawazat, transgressions, by municipal authorities and others. 
they are bemoaned for the ways in which they transgress uh, public urban spaces. Street vendors as violators of urban bylaws for how they occupy sidewalks, side streets, and other public spaces. What I find particularly interesting, even remarkable, is who gets marked as a transgressor. Powerful political actors consistently transgress laws, bylaws, regulations, using state institutions to legalize and profit from their own property acquisitions and developments. And at the same time, street vendors are labeled transgressors, stigmatized and deemed irredeemable. Their physical extraction from public spaces is sold by municipal authorities as a return to urban normality in a city that for years has struggled to live such a state. This last point becomes still more important when recognizing that informal street stalls are inherently temporary, in part because of the materials cobbled together to make them, such as corrugated metal roofing and discarded shelving and, 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 other, and other materials. Meanwhile, the transgressions of the more powerful are far more transformative because of their staying power, their longevity, the near impossibility of removing a shopping center from a site that was never intended to have one in the first place. This working paper helps show how the entanglement of three forces, violence, privatization of property, and consumption are implicated in Baghdad's social spatial transformations. These changes are ultimately exacerbating social divisions that I suspect are becoming increasingly intolerable to a growing number of residents. This is why I end this paper with a brief reflection on the popular uprising that gripped central and southern Iraq in the fall of 2019 through the beginning of 2020. The movement that occupied a number of urban centers, not just uh, Baghdad, is a reflection of how few in number the beneficiaries of these forces are. This paper places a great deal of emphasis on the how of Baghdad's transformations. That is, how exactly these urban changes have come about in the first place, how they have been facilitated. For the question of how also helps determine, determine the who, the winners and losers, so to speak, and the why, that is why inequality is growing under a new order that was hailed as a break from a past that was disturbing, dastardly, and deadly. At the same time, and I'll, and I'll close here, asking how destructive creations have come about is also a prompt to consider how these transformations might be undone. I do not tackle such a question in this paper, in part because I defer to the brave activists on the ground who have long lamented and sought to change the conditions of their existence. But I suspect part of the answer is grounded in recapturing a sense of the public or the commons that has long been chipped away at by curiously similar, stubbornly coercive forces that Iraqis have for decades and decades struggled against. We began to see how powerful such an effort to recapture the public, the Watan, can be less than two years ago. The sentiments that drove hundreds of thousands into the streets continue to simmer and will surely percolate to the surface once more precisely because people's grievances have hardly been addressed. So long as popular demands are not met by elites increasingly negligent in their responsibility to the people they claim to represent, mass protests will persist. 
and calls will grow still louder for the, the downfall of a political order that has failed to offer what so many believed it promised, delivering instead transformations to Iraq's most important city that appear to represent more the snuffing out of futures than the offer of more promising ones. Thank you very much. That was, that was excellent. Thank you, Omar. Um, can I draw the participants, the audience's attention to the chat box that they can use to fire uh, celebratory but also challenging questions to Omar? That would be great. I have uh, five or six, but I'll, I'll stop when you, uh, when you, the audience, start um, asking questions. So please get on with it. I, I think this, this work is so evocative. It gives an insight into the, the sociological trends from the ground up where the powerful have preyed upon and made use of, uh, of, of their power to, to, to take publicly held goods and, and, and privatize them, take, take them for themselves and their own enrichment. So uh, let me just pick up on what might be obvious to you and seem to be jumping out to me, but do you see the driving force of conflict in Iraq is now between uh, uh, an enriched ruling elite and the vast majority of the population that are alienated from the post-2003 political order uh, and have, have benefited not much from it at all. And if that's the case, can you see their organize, the, the, the society or the alienated or the activists organizing capacity to be strong enough to make a difference against an elite that, as we know, tragically is, is both covertly and overtly highly armed? Thanks for the question, Toby. Um, I think for the most part, that's right. I mean, you know, this notion of the elite uh, versus the uh, the masses, the public has been one that, uh, you know, your friend and mine, Renan Mansour, has been harping about um, for some time. And I think it's, uh, it's generally right. Um, and what I find more, I think perhaps more uh, or equally important there is the ways in which elite forces have coalesced, and, and him and I wrote about this uh, some time ago now, I guess, uh, around defending a political, the political order, even though they, these elites come from, you know, sensibly different parts of the political spectrum. Um, and the ways, more specifically, the ways in which they have uh, deployed violence to defend that order. Um, and we, we, we saw that lethality uh, in the fall of 2019 through 2020 until, until the, the spread of the, of the pandemic. Um, and the extent to which that will continue, I think we can expect that. I think we can expect that if, the pro if we can assume that the protests will, will continue as well at some point when, uh, as I kind of alluded to towards the end of this presentation, uh, one, one would certainly be concerned around uh, how particular elite forces who have so much to lose uh, will once again try to coalesce to, to defend that order. Um, so then your second point, I guess the second part of that question is how the extent to which there are, are there are kind of ground or grassroots forces that can help to, to push back against that. And I, I, you know, I think that will continue. And I think, uh, and the reason that that does continue 
is because there are a few other options. Um, and this notion of, of, of reform um, of the existing order has proven to be uh, uh, quite a difficult uh, task, even amongst those who, who believe in it and who are you know, in control of aspects, uh, parts of that system that they claim to be very influential. Uh, but in those efforts, um, they, are, they are rebuffed. So uh, the jury's out, and I think we'll have to keep, uh, keep watching how this, play, how, how this would play out, for, for, lack of a, for lack of a better answer. I mean, that must leave you incredibly pessimistic about the up-and-coming national elections in, in October. I note that the veteran campaigner and Iraqi communist Jassim al-Hilfi has just, in my reading of his latest piece at least, given his backing to a boycott. Uh, because of the targeted assassination campaigns that have been rolling since October 2019, but seem to be getting uh, much more targeted. They're, they're killing opposition activists with the apparent intent outcome of breaking any electoral opposition. I mean, do, do you see that there's no role now for electoral mobilization in challenging or even seeking to reform the state, however anodyne? <sighs> I mean, you know, I'm uh, I'm generally quite, uh, um, you know, I, I'm quite stunned by 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 the, the interest that these elections get in the last, uh, certainly the last round. Um, and I don't necessarily think, in part because of of just how of what the sentiment is, and the ways in which people. I mean, I was I was in Baghdad in the last uh, during the last federal elections in in, in May of 2018, and uh, you know, it was palpable. The that may not have been a an official boycott, but what was palpable was a complete and utter disillusionment with the system. So that when the numbers started to come in uh, that night of the, the turnout being just absolutely abysmal, including in, you know, including in, um, in the former prime minister's uh, home district of Karada, Hadil Abadi's home district. I mean, these numbers were, uh, were incredibly low. And, 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 and as others and yourself would know that the official tally is, uh, is highly disputed and that uh, that was, I think, around 44%. So that this was uh, certainly much lower. And certainly the informal kind of anecdotal evidence that I was collecting that day um, by interlocutors, friends, and, and others were confirming that. So the point and why I bring that up is I'm, you know, I don't necessarily think we need to look too far ahead. Or if we do look ahead to the next, the next elections, we have to look back at, at, at what happened three years ago. Uh, and I think it's a generally probably a good indication. Uh, the difference becomes the extent to which some of these new uh, movements, these youth movements, who have come out of the the, the uprising or re revolutionary moment of and movement of 2019, um, believe in engaging the system will uh, might uh, turn out to, to be victorious for, for them and their and their efforts. And I think there's a lot of pessimism um, around that. Uh, and if there is a more of an organized boycott. Um, I would not be surprised. Thank you. Um, uh, I remind people that you can ask questions in, in the Q&A box, and um, I will get to Bruce Stanley's first question. I thank Bruce for that. But I'll just ask one last question myself, which is about the broader topic of your thesis and your overall work, the Scarecrow State. I mean, how, how would you go about explaining in comparative perspective the Iraqi state? I, I read some interesting literature just out on Iraq, and it, it's interesting that the person who wrote it said to me that 
there has there isn't a, a, a great understanding of the Iraqi state or or, or how the new post. 2003 or 2005 system has impacted on that. So given that what you're documenting is, is broadly the absence of the rule of law, um, a plethora of, of, of wielders of coercion, some within the state, some outside the state. You talk about parastatals, which indicates they're on the edge of the state, both in and out. So within your wider work, how do you conceive of the Iraqi state in comparative perspective? Thanks for the question. So I think, um, so my work in this dissertation is uh, not necessarily, you know, it's a, it's a careful metaphor that I use and that I, I have been able to garner from, um, or crib, if you will, from, from uh, comments, uh, um, you know, from interlocutors. And uh, so it's not necessarily a, a, a scarecrow state that I call it, but I think of, um, it, the reference was in terms of how we think about checkpoints. And, um, and I, I detail this, and I, I hope to, to publish it at some point um, uh, around how that how I think through that metaphor, both with it and against it. Uh, more broadly, to your question, I think through, as you know, Toby, I write uh, when I write about the the state in Iraq, I, I I write through the lens of the state effects, so not necessarily thinking through, in other words, not necessarily thinking through the state as a tangible thing, an entity that exists axiomatically but rather as an effect of mechanisms of power following uh, Timothy Mitchell and others, mechanisms, practices of power that make the state appear to exist as such. And so um, when I think through that, I think what, uh, and it informs a lot of what's in this paper is, is trying to get at the how, not necessarily where is, where and where is not the state, what is the state and, and what kind of state is the Iraqi state, but rather what are the mechanisms and forces of power that, help it appear to exist in a particular form. I realize to some that may be unsatisfying, um, but uh, because there are many who seek to pin the state down and to get a really kind of coherent sense of what it looks like, it, it being strong, failed, weak, transitional, other people, you know, other scholarship says, says that. I, I find it less, uh, I feel like in, 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 in sense that it occludes more than it, than it opens up um, to understanding how uh, mechanisms of power in a place like Iraq operate. You see a bit of this, for example, in, in, um, uh, in Renaud's last paper on, on uh, networks of power and the Hashid, I think is, a, is perhaps an apt, uh, apt approach to that, to that institution as it's called. Um, and I think through different kinds of forces and different kinds of, of, of mechanisms that, uh, that reinforce state, uh, uh, the, effect, the effect of the state. Um, and I think to, again, try and answer your question a bit more specifically when you ask about the rule of law or its absence, I think within these uh, legal institutions, be they, be they courts, be they, um, you know, other, other, you know, other mechanisms, other institutions, the police, the military and, and whatnot, I try and you know kind of spotlight or look at the driving forces within those institutions to make them appear to make them uh, to understand how they appear as they do and give them their power and what uh, takes that takes that power away. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's a the most satisfying answer to your question, but uh, but to me that's what's most interesting in a place like Iraq where it's it's incredibly difficult speak of, I mean, anywhere it's incredibly difficult to speak of a unitary state. I think it's a bit of a myth, but in a place like Iraq where uh, parastatal forces are so, 
are just so present, uh, especially in the city, especially in the capital, spatially, the ways in which places in which headquarters exist and the way and the, and the power that quite, quite literally emanates, vibrates from these sites, from these spaces, I think, uh, I think really matters for how we talk about how to study the state um, in the city and, and across the country. Great. I think we've got a, a fascinating question from Bruce Stanley and then from Christopher Tilly. And I, I remind our audience to use the Q&A function to ask questions. Bruce asks, is there a bottom-up reconceptualization of sovereignty amongst some Baghdadis to think of the city as the key site of politics, of change, of contestation, um, in opposition to a federated Iraqi imagery? And I would add to that that it's interesting that if we were talking about competing units of organization or units of analysis, it struck me, although somewhat unstated, but a theme running through your paper was the juxtaposition of class against alleged uh, ethnic or religious identities in Iraq. So Bruce is asking if it might be the city juxtaposed or in opposition to the federated imagery of Iraq. And uh, if you could expand on that, but also is there a class conscious, a kind of Lukashian class in itself uh, for itself? A growing class conscious as possible. Yeah. Um, to think this city as a key site of politics as a, in opposition to the federated imaginary. I mean, I'm not sure if I, if I could pinpoint it uh, uh, that way, in part because uh, the ways in which for, for some, and some, some um, you know, uh, folks I would speak to, is that you can't necessarily uh, separate out the conception of, of the city uh, from its hinterlands. Um, and in part because, and so this is certainly the case with security actors. So I write about this in the context of security actors who think about the security of the city vis-a-vis -vis what comes from outside of it. Um, the extent to which, uh, kind of separating that question out for, for a moment, the extent to which you can think through or folks are thinking through the, the city uh, in opposition to other uh, political imaginaries. Um, I think a more, a more interesting question that I'm trying to get at is how you think of the, some of the differences within the city, the kind of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the fragmentation of urban, urban imaginaries that, that plays out um, within the city. So I try and get at this to, to the extent people are traveling across different spaces, um, in different districts, uh, this this has played out in part because of the security and insecurity that has long kind of plagued plagued the city. So I'm not sure I'm not sure you could speak as uh, of Baghdad as a kind of a unified unified uh, urban imaginary or an urban sovereignty. I, I guess is the, the word you're you're uh, you, you use in that question, Bruce. Um, but so the question then becomes for me: How does it look in discrete? Uh, conceptions of, 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 of urban sovereignty play out within urban nodes or within districts and neighborhoods that I think uh, would probably be uh, really interesting to press on. And I, I, I don't think I do in this paper, but I do think one big question and not to harp on the point because there are many others, but this parastatal aspect, the ways in which different groups control different parts of the city certainly you know, inflects or certainly, I guess, contributes to an answer to that question that I think uh, we would have to grapple with. 
Great. I think the next question takes us in a different tack, but it's nonetheless equally as fascinating by Christopher Tilly. It's to say, how far do you think that the phenomenon you describe in relation to the relationship between property development, politicians, and perception of, of corruption is common to other countries? But in London, and I'd add, especially with this current government in Britain, um, could you expand on what the unique, what's unique about the Baghdad context? So I'll, I'm not sure the last part of that question. How far do you think there's a reasonable case for developing modern retail and leisure facilities for residents in Mansoor? I think I'll leave that question out. I'll, I'll try and uh, get at this question of the uniqueness. Um, and part of what I think is at play here are the ways in which uh, uh, the ways in which the how do I how do I put this? So the ways in which these forces are able to use state institutions for again lack of a better phrase state institutions state practices to advance particular uh, private interests and when they pull away from that when they can pull away from from that there are these very strange. Um, um, inter, you know, interconnections between between state, parastate, and and other forces that play out in Baghdad that I uh, I don't see uh, perhaps can compare to other like cities and places, but uh, London I don't I don't necessarily think would be one of them. Though I think it's an important important um, uh, comparison to question to, to places outside the global south. And here I think is where coercion and violence uh, plays out, uh, and and it comes to really matter. I, I have a you know, a kind of a vignette or a, cat, uh, a story in the paper that talks about the ways in which a particular parastatal actor is involved in rent collection, uh, extracting rents from from um, you know um, uh, folks in a in a kind of popular market in in Mansoor uh, that have been implicated in the ways in which state and parastatal actors are kind of working as a kind of meshed uh, meshed set of forces. And I think part of the reason is because of the coercive capabilities of of the parastatal actor in that particular instance, at least as is told to me by, by the by the residents who are forced to pay to pay those pay those rents in that particular fashion. So th that is where the particular nature of Baghdad, I think, plays out to the to, to your question. And the second part of the question, I'll rephrase it: Don't you think the people of Mansoor and wider Baghdad deserve twenty-first century retail opportunities? So I so let me be very clear. I mean that's that that uh, I think you know for the defenders and the critic the defenders of, of of Baghdad and Mansur and these these developments um, and the critics of, of perhaps the my critical position would say this all exists right. So you have uh, and I, I write about this. So Mansur Mall, Baghdad Mall, Babylon Mall, these places are are, are very much uh, contemporary modern uh, re retail and, and and leisure facilities. The, the point there is how they came about, how they were developed in, uh, in very uh, dense uh, ways that kind of flew in the face of urban regulations, bylaws, urban planning that has long been on the books. Um, so the question then becomes how many malls do you need in a, in a district? How many malls do you need on a high street uh, in a city that is lacking other kinds of uh, very, very important basic infrastructure, grievances around Water grievances around electricity. I mean, these are, these are things, Toby. I don't need to tell you. I don't need to tell you about, or I don't probably don't need to tell most people who are who are on this call. Uh, you know, to, to speak about. 
So these kinds of basic forms of physical and social infrastructure that are very much lacking in, um, you know, in the in the city, and yet there's a kind of focus on on the shopping center, on the shopping mall, right? Uh, there's, you know, recent, uh, just a recent report I was watching on uh, Zafarani district in East Baghdad, where they're talking about basic pavement of roads that they're lacking and just, you know, utter grievances where they've been asked by municipal authorities to collect the money and bring it to the municipality and the municipality will go and pave the road for them. And they said, what do you, <laughs> I mean, why would we do that when you're the kind of state institution that's supposed to be doing this already. So to be asking about, so when I, when I critique these, these, uh, these ways of everyday cons consumer markets, it's very much in the broader context of what is not on offer in Baghdad uh, and the grievances, the everyday grievances people have, uh, you know, around, uh, around what is, you know, what is lacking in terms of public provision. Excellent. Um, I'm going to come back to the, the next question, but I think Jessica Watkins' question actually interacts with yours very neatly and highlights uh, a problem I have with uh, uh, Timothy Mitchell's work. So I'll, I'll use that as a springboard in. So uh, Jessica says in, in relation to Bruce's question, the idea of seeing sovereignty or seeing the state in terms of its effects. Now, here comes the big question that we can only hazard a guess at. How do Iraqis see the state? So I think, uh, no, great. And I appreciate the question. So I guess I would say, you know, I, <laughs> the question I would kind of pause it back and do, do most people see the state that way? And I, and I, in any, in any context. Um, and the reason I ask that is because I don't necessarily think it, it challenges the idea of the ways in which we can study the state and not to get too kind of uh, too the theoretical, though I think that's, that's kind of what we're, the, the, the basis of the question. Um, Though at the same time, by simply asking what the state should and should not do, I think we are affecting it. Right? We are bringing it into existence by insisting and assuming that the state should do and should not do certain things. And this is part of the argument that I make in my in my work around security. I think there is something very particular around um, what living physical security and insecurity does for conceptualizations of the state, both fearing it and desiring it in one fell swoop, so to speak, one existence, one particular condition that, you know, and I think this is what makes, you know, uh, Iraq and security infrastructure in Iraq so interesting to study and, and um, uh, kind of opens up new kinds of questions because you have situations in, in, in Baghdad in particular, uh, at least vis-a-vis -vis checkpoints where which is kind of what I know best, where people are at once, um, you know, fearing the the both the, the <laughs> fearing the inability of state security infrastructure to offer security, uh, while at the same time fearing uh, the capabilities of particular state actors um, and their and their coercive yeah their coercive capabilities. So it's this very strange uh, dynamic, I, I would I would kind of suggest, where there's a there's a kind of interaction between different kinds of uh, uh, yeah different kinds of affective experiences that I think help to bring about the state or help to effect the state into into existence. The same can be said around um, desire, right? Desiring the state to do particular things and expecting it, and in the moment of expecting and desiring it, the state is in part affected. Through those, through those kind of affective um, um, energies, 
uh, which, which I try to write a little bit about, or I'm trying to currently. So, um, you, know, you know, the fixed ideas, I guess I would hope that that answer kind of contributes to that question, at least, at least a little bit. Oh, I think it's an excellent answer. And I, I now want to keep you focusing on checkpoints and jump back to Urquhart's question above Jessica's on your list. And he's asking you to make an international comparison on the impact of checkpoints. Mm -hmm. How ubiquitous have they been in Iraq? Um, and does the widespread corruption in Iraq make uh, them worse or provide opportunities to mitigate their impact? Mm -hmm. Um, thanks for the question, Eckert. So, so I, I should be clear on something, which is that uh, the, the checkpoints that I look at in my research are, are largely within uh, the, bound, the boundaries, the formal boundaries of the city. Those are, you know, specifically urban checkpoints that are kind of in the heart of Baghdad um, that are manned or, or yeah, populated by uh, different security, uh, state security institutions and personnel, including soldiers, police officers, um, in military intelligence, um, even traffic police. And so there is a particular uh, particularity to checkpoints that I study in Baghdad, both in terms of their spatial presence and the ways in which they are populated by a kind of a collection of different security actors. Uh, I am grappling with this, at the same time grappling with this question of comparison. Um, so just to, the reason I make that, I should just add, I make that uh, explicit in this answer is because questions around corruption at checkpoints, at least in the case of Iraq, is very much um, related to checkpoints that are outside the city. Not to say that this does not, you know, there are not corrupt practices with at checkpoints within uh, urban boundaries. It's you know, certainly the case, and we can talk about that and how that plays out. But for the most part, the kinds of I think widespread corruption that you're talking about vis-a-vis -vis checkpoints in Iraq are happening uh, at, at checkpoints, kind of in the, uh, you know. In, in the hinterlands and actually further, you know, abroad on, on freeways and highways that are linking up different uh, provinces. Uh, and other people have written a little bit about this. In terms of comparison, um, I, I mean, I think within just in that answer, it raises questions around how far comparison between security infrastructures like checkpoints can go. How far can you, you know, can you, how, to what extent can you uh, theorize and transpose or transpose and theorize, right? Uh, and to what extent comparison across geographies uh, works. The, the most obvious, right, the most obvious example are the checkpoints in Iraq versus, and in Baghdad that I look at, versus the, the extent, you know, the, the, I guess the checkpoints that are written about in the settler colonial setting of occupied Palestinian territories, which are vastly different kinds of checkpoints. Um, a second, you know, a second, and we can talk about why that is the case. The second comparison vis-a-vis -vis space and location is the, the differences between checkpoints at within urban heartlands and those at the, at the uh, nation state borderlands, which mark, again, our de delimitations of sovereignty, traditional notions of nation state sovereignty, um, that again are doing different things. And the ones I think that are, that exist within uh, the, you know, within Baghdad that are not necessarily checking for people's citizenship as such in the traditional sense of that. So these are the kinds of uh, uh, issues that I have to kind of grapple with, or I try to when I think about comparison. It's an important question, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure right, the extent to to which we can theorize um, 
and, and, and compare across geographies. I would just add that there are, there are <laughs> innumerable, innumerable contingencies uh, and particularities that we'd have to think through. And I think paradoxes that we can get into as well um, that uh, both make the comparison and make the theorizing checkpoints across settings you know, incredibly interesting and incredibly fraught. Excellent, and I think a very honest uh, answer there. Um, now, Mohammed Tafi Galawi has a couple of questions. He wants to kind of broaden out, I think quite rightly, the focus to the MENA region as a whole. Um, and it, it, he's looking at a series of failed states, as you can see, Omar, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya. Uh, and he's asking, the first question is, what about the involvement of the United Nations? And the second one, I think, speaks directly to the scaling down of the October protest movement. And he's saying, will COVID-19 mark the end game for Iraq and for Lebanon, possibly Syria and Algeria's mass popular uprisings? Sure, I guess I can offer a brief answer to this, uh, in part because I don't necessarily subscribe to the the kind of uh, labels um, and, or perhaps what could be called in framings of uh, fragile failing and failed states. I don't, I don't necessarily think these are helpful, uh, helpful um, monikers. Um, and rather I'm, I'm far more interested in, in kind of investigating how the state, you know, comes to be seen as it does, uh, as opposed to using these labels that I think, again, do more to occlude than they do to illuminate. Uh, as to the question around COVID-19, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't think, I think, well, put it this way, I think the, the pandemic in a place like Iraq, <clears throat> what has transpired, both in terms of the actual <clears throat> pandemic and the, the effects, uh, as we saw as, uh, you know, at one of the hospitals in Baghdad, devastating, devastating fire, um, has, has once again illuminated the inability of those who control levers of power to offer most people uh, and most Iraqis uh, basic services in the ways that they, you know, ostensibly should get in uh, in any kind of compact with those with political authority. So I would I would posit kind of perhaps the, the kind of mirror image of what's on offer in that question, which is. Uh, to what extent uh, is the pandemic further uh, exposing the just the kind of utter uh, failings of political orders, uh, be it Lebanon and be, you know, here I am in, in Beirut, but uh, also in Iraq and other places that, uh, that are kind of laying bare the fact that there is nothing behind the curtain. But what is behind the curtain and increasingly in front of the curtain is is extrajudicial violence, I suppose, which brings us back to what seems to me a kind of long-running struggle between the aspirations for citizenship and democratic responsive government and the violence tied to the ruling elite, I suppose. Okay, I think we're we're we've we've got nine minutes left. Um so if anyone else has more questions out there, please, uh, please speak up. It'll be good to hear from you. Omar is uh, really keen to get some more questions in uh, that don't come from me. Um, but while uh, we're waiting for that, I, I suppose the, the big question that I wrestle with after spending time in Baghdad, certainly, but after uh, 
um, but after reading your piece, is is why the the barrier between the elite and the state institutions collapsed and seemingly has collapsed so thoroughly and so quickly? How can the elite, as you do, powerfully and depressingly document, simply do away with restrictions, do away with property ownership, do away with uh, any, any legality in, in their pursuit for self-enrichment? What happened? Is, is this a, a post-regime change transition? It, part of it in your paper, you actually hint that there's a, uh, or you actually say that there's a, there's a, there's a conflict around the, the illegal or corrupt use of land pre and post 2003. So I'm just trying to draw you out on, on that possible continuity or the role of America. Where did this collapse in, in the rule of law and the institutionalization of the state come from? You know, it's, you know, uh, part of the things that, uh, part of the issues that we, we have to grapple with um, when we're, when we're studying Iraq in terms of its discontinuities and continuities uh, uh, between, you know, pre and post 2003 and what runs, uh, what runs across it, uh, are, you know, are the notions that in, in criticizing what we are, there's a delicate point to make, so bear with me, but when we are criticizing what has transpired since 2003, we are somehow defending what came before it. And, um, and that is just not the case. I mean, I, you know, as if I need to say that, but I will, right? The reason, part of the reason why I emphasize that point is because uh, there, there is a, there is, while there are con continuities in around how coercion has played out, as coercion, how, how coercion has been relied upon. And Toby, you know this uh, perhaps even better than I do in terms of writing about what you call the new authoritarianism that, uh, trans, that transpired under uh, Nurin Maliki and, uh, and, and his uh, two terms in, in government. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, the reason I point to, I point to this is that there are continuities in terms of, of coercion, but there, there is, I think, an important difference which is the ways in which the kind of capillaries of private interests, uh, for-profit private interests, have transpired in Iraq today, or in, I mean, I can say in Baghdad today, in a way that has actually removed public ownership. So it has actually involved the registering of title in the names of, of, uh, of private citizens, a private elite. Right, in a way that I don't necessarily think has happened in previous instances. And what I mean by that is um, there were, you know, when you had coercive uh, corruption, as you did and you have for, for many years pre-2003, pre again, to be clear, it was often still keeping uh, assets in the name of the state, quote unquote, in the name of the public. And as I understand it, I'm, I'm you know, ready to be proven wrong about this, but, uh, or to, to be at least shown exceptions. There have been, that is not necessarily the case, right? And this has coincided with um, the, you know, to, to, to use that, that term, neoliberal reforms that were instituted in 2003 and 2004 that have promoted the privatization of public assets. So you can't separate out, in terms of discontinuities, you can't separate out what, what was implemented in that economic project. 
And I don't, and, and I just want to emphasize this point and also to draw attention to important scholarship. This is also the case vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, housing policies in Baghdad and other, other cities. There's important research being done by, by professors at the University of uh, Nahrain University in Baghdad, uh, by Samah Ibrahim and, and her, her colleagues, uh, Shema Hussain and others, who are writing about uh, the changes in housing policy. It's a fantastic dissertation that writes about the evolution of housing policies from, from kind of more quote unquote socialist housing policies to neoliberal ones uh, post 2003 and what that has meant for the public uh, and the notion of the Baghdadi public and the Iraqi public. This is important research. This is not simply, you know, kind of a, <laughs> me criticizing kind of a neoliberalism, but actually again, trying to uh, parse out what this actually looks like, not just in the uh, shopping malls, but also in the, the ways in which housing policy has developed where it is no longer seen as a, as a, as a public right, uh, but a profitable privilege for, for, you know, for the few. And this has also then led to, and I should just, and I'll end on this point, this has also led to wholesale transformations in, uh, in how housing looks, the kind of physical spaces of housing, the subdivision of property lots, um, in places and in, in, in neighborhoods that were not supposed to be, again, by urban planning, not supposed to be so populated, so dense. And yet they became that because of a kind of uh, inability to enforce bylaws that were on the books for a very long time that, uh, you know, that required the spacing out of population in particular ways, the planning of how you know, uh, urban populations would live. That has all been kind of done away with, both in terms of you know when we're talking about shopping centers and when we're talking about housing. And that when we when we de delve into these details, we get to see both continuities and discontinuities that we're that you and I are talking about. But really, what these transformations actually look like in everyday life, and why they are so drastic, and why they seem to be so enduring, and what that means for public life moving forward. Excellent. Uh, that's a. a good and typically generous note to end on. You'll notice that Omar, uh, throughout his talk, has cited other people's work, which I think is always an excellent thing for an academic to do. Uh, and the, in the last couple of minutes, all that's left to me is to thank Omar, both for undertaking the research and publishing a superb paper. If you haven't read it by now, I wonder why. And after Omar's presentation, you certainly will run away and read it now, I think. It's, it's, it's a, a beautiful and evocative piece. And I think it it speaks to the larger body of work that Omar is, is currently finishing, which is rich in ethnographic detail, but powerful insights into the transformation that Iraq and especially Baghdad has undergone since 2003. So um, thank you, Omar. Uh, if this wasn't virtual, we'd, all go, we'd both go out for some great kebab in Erbil tonight, but seeing it as it is, um, we, we we wish you well tonight. We thank you very much for your work and most importantly, our very well-informed and thoughtful audience. Thank, thank you, Emma. Thank you, Toby. Thanks to your colleagues as well. Very grateful.